You are now in tune with the Talking Reggae podcast. As always, I am Jay of Street Level Uprising. My special guest on this episode is Mr. Jake Savona. And Jake's got this really cool project. In fact, it's part two of a really cool project, and he's here to tell us all about it. Uh, Jake Savona, welcome to the Talking Reggae podcast. How are you, man? Thanks so much for having me, man. It's really good to be here. Uh, no, it's, it's, uh, it's my pleasure to have you here, man. So <laughs> we're going to talk all about your your new release, which is out today, um, yep. recorded. Uh, so by the time everybody hears this, sees this, it'll already be out. Mr. Savona mm-hmm. presents Havana meets Kingston part two. We're going to talk yes. all about that and also part one and just about your life uh, in music. But I, I like to start in the same spot with everyone who comes on my show, man, which is tell me about your earliest memories of reggae music. Well, I grew up in Melbourne, in Australia, and I remember it's a, a radio show called PBS that I loved growing up, and I still love now. It's it's a it's an amazing music station. You hear jazz, you hear world music, you hear everything. And a friend of mine, Jesse, I had um, has a, one of the longest running reggae radio shows in the world, I believe. Um, and that was every Saturday afternoon. But even before I discovered that show, I think like most kids, I discovered reggae through Bob Marley. I remember um, I had a CD player. And back then, this is like, well, we're talking 19, oh, God, 1990, maybe early 90s. So, uh, you know, pre, pretty much I didn't have an internet account yet. Um, definitely no MP3. So everything was CD and there was um, a, a shop in the, uh, um, in the city and I get a train in and you could hire CDs. So I remember one time I hired the legend Bob Marley CD. I would have been 15 or 16. And that was a mind blowing thing. But very shortly after that, and it's a very strange actually, because my friend Siri, she had a cassette tape of Augustus Pablo and it's this great album called Mr. Basie. Um, and at first I was like, what is this strange instrument and this very simple music? But I listened to this tape on repeat and it became very uh, influential actually. And then the first dance hall record I ever discovered was Capleton More Fire and I would have been about 17 or 18. And I literally had that on a cassette tape with a yellow Walkman and um, I, I lived in Australia, but my dad was in England, so I'd go over to Europe and visit him. And I remember I was I travelled to Morocco with him and also by myself. It was the only music I had. I had the cassette tape of Cable to Morphia on repeat for weeks. And so <laughs> that gives you an insight into some of the first reggae music I heard. Oh, and that's brilliant too, man. It's funny. Yeah. You, you and I have those those origins in common. It's funny how many mm. people, you know, I'm 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 not I'm not a young guy anymore. Uh, so it's, mm. it's funny, like how many people my age, older, like whether it was legend and then, like you said, like getting into Capleton mm. or getting into Buju Banton and stuff when I was in high school in the early 90s. Mm. Um, mm. So, yeah. When did you start playing music? When did you? That, that-, that all began from the big, yeah, from I started playing piano when I was six years old. So my mom, we had a piano at the back of my a house or like an outside studio and um yeah mum got me piano lessons from the age of six and I started classical like most kids and <clears throat> almost gave it up at about 13 and then got really serious into classical music and then 16 17 years old I discovered Jimi Hendrix and then I discovered jazz and I started expanding what I was doing I was a classical nerd so actually to sort of really learn how they because the jazz kids at my high school wouldn't teach me because I was one of the classical guys you know so but I had my vinyl collection and I would literally sit with a with the vinyls like old Miles records or Winton Kelly who's one of my favorite 
um, jazz pianist to actually Jamaican, funnily enough, but he played with Miles. And I would literally transcribe, you know, with a book, like a classical musician would do transcribe the solos to work out the scales and what they were doing. And that's how I discovered the blues scales and the pentatonics and, um, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah, that's cool. I got a jazz background too, man. Not so much the classical, but the jazz. Um, I still say Kind of Blue is like the greatest album that's just ever been recorded. Oh, it's phenomenal. On every level, just the son- sonically, it's extraordinary as well. Like it's, you know, that was 1959 and what we're like, um, you know, 60 years later and it's still hard to beat that record for depth of sound quality. The sound feel, the warmth, the presence, the clarity, it is extraordinary. And the fact that in this Pro Tools generation that we're in, that we can look at an album and say mm. they did two takes of each of those tunes, mm. that they there wasn't even anything written. It was just a couple sketches and like they got together and banged out a couple takes and this album was done in two days. Like that's that type of thing just doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, it's it's much more rare. Um, funnily enough, in Cuba. Um, Egram, the studio where I recorded in Central Havana, which is where the famous Buena Vista Social Club album was recorded. It's one of those few studios I found in the world where you could actually capture that kind of sound, you know, like putting all the musicians in the center of the room and one or two mics and, um, and the quality of the musicians. I've actually even thought about doing a Cuban kind of blue. Let's see if it happens or not. Um, but yeah, you're right. In this day and age, it's so much processing and, God forbid you do a vocal take and just let it be. You know, you have to put some auto-tune or you have to correct things here and there. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, so you were, you were a classical nerd and I can't even, Mm -hmm. I can't really even talk to you about classical music because my classical music game is, is almost non-existent, but you're a classical nerd. You started getting into jazz. When did you start playing with other musicians, like in a band? Um, yeah, I actually, so I, I did a music degree at Melbourne University. I was got, a, got a scholarship and went over to the UK and finished it over there. And then, yeah, soon after I came back to Australia, I started my first band in Melbourne, which was with some kind of like hippie jam musicians. It was a really good band, actually. We weren't very good in the studio, but live we were quite a phenomenon. Um, and that was called Pan. And then later I had a, a hip-hop crew in Melbourne that I played keys and wrote beats for called Ilzilla. So, yeah, growing up in Melbourne playing live, it was I was pretty busy. We also did these great nights called Street Poetics. It was every Monday night and basically me and some other uh, really – really fine musicians. We were like an improvising band and then MCs and singers would come in and we play, you know, hip hop and soul and funk all night. And that was amazing. It's just, it's a time I miss every, actually, because every Monday we didn't prepare anything. It was just jams, you know, but the quality was really, really good. Um, now I live in Byron Bay and which is a town sort of between Sydney and Brisbane up the East coast of Australia. Um, and yeah, we had, there's a music scene there, but I miss those, uh, old days and I, I want to get back into it I guess of um, just like jamming it's just yeah. so good you know <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. an, it's an art that we're losing man I mean like I came up mm, I mm. came up just jamming you get in a room with people and yep. you know maybe you play some covers or something but just to jam just somebody mm-hmm. starts playing something out of nowhere and everybody mm-hmm. like that that art of improvisational jamming isn't what it used to mm. used to hear stories about like Jimi Hendrix would play a show and then they'd go some other place and they would jam all these famous guys. We need to bring yeah. that back, man. It's beautiful. And we mm. need to bring it back. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. During the pandemic, I have a friend in, in the, who has his own property in the hills in Byron and for uh, Australia, 
you know, we went into pretty serious lockdowns and very strict rules. And But the area where I lived, there was almost no COVID, you know. For the first two months, we took those rules seriously. And we just realized, hang on, no one in this town has has COVID. So we actually did very private, invite-only little cabin parties. But some of my favorite musicians in the area, you know, I'd bring my hammer dog and my Leslie, my rope, my gone crazy without that kind of musical connections in, in, a, in the pandemic, you know? Yeah. yeah. So you're lugging Hammonds and Rhodes and everything? Yeah, I'm, actually, I'm in Cuba right now, but before I left, um, uh, we, we had some terrible storms in northern New South Wales and my house actually got flooded. So some of my equipment had water damage, but I've taken all my vintage keyboards to this guru in Brisbane and he's just basically um, pimping them all up for me while I'm away. <laughs> oh, that's that's cool, man. I got, a, I, got, I got an old Rhodes, man. I love that thing. I love there's just something about the sound of of one of those um it's just beautiful Uh, and a a hammond also yeah 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 yeah, totally man so bring it forward man and um where did where did the whole havana meets kingston and i've I've read i've read about i've read your story but i want you to tell um how did that whole thing come about well 2004 was my first trip to jamaica and in australia we have very little caribbean culture you know back then no jamaicans even now very few so my love for reggae music was getting stronger and stronger and I realized I really needed to get to the homeland and experience the music in its proper settings, you know, the, the people, the culture, the food, everything. And um, I went in 2004 and I recorded an album that I ended up calling Melbourne Meets Kingston because I made all these rhythms and recorded some, some I'd produced and some I'd recorded with my band in Australia and then brought that to Jamaica. And that was the first time anyone had done that from Australia anyway. So we released that album called Melbourne Meets Kingston. It did quite well. And then, um, I released a few other records in Jamaica. I did an album with Sizzler and then I was back uh, heading to Jamaica in 2014. And um, I'd seen online some photos of a dear friend of mine, Sahida, and her, she'd come back from Cuba and her photos were extraordinary. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about Cuba for so long. You know, when I was 20, I had the Buena Vista CD. I listened to it religiously on repeat and, um, and, you know, love that record, but I'd sort of forgotten a bit about Cuban music, I guess. And, then I, and I realized that it sounds uh, very ignorant on me, but I had no idea where Cuba was. And I, I looked on the map and I was literally in disbelief that it's right next to Jamaica. They're like 160 miles apart, you know. It's like insane. And I thought, what have I been doing? And then I, I got a line and I was going to Jamaica for a month and I just bought flights almost direct through the Cayman Islands, um, 10 days in Cuba. And it was an amazing trip. And on my last day in Havana, I was sitting in a cafe in old Havana drinking coffee and just sort of daydreaming. And I was just imagining how nice the sound of the Cuban rumba might sound with the naibingi or the roots reggae of Jamaica mixed with the Cuban percussion. And, and it just sort of hit me, wow, this, this will be a really cool project, but I'm sure someone's done it before is what I thought. Mm-hmm. And when I got back to Australia, I did the research and asked people and, and I realized, no, it never happened before. I thought in Miami something like this would happen, but the thing is Jamaicans don't speak Spanish and Cubans don't speak English. The Cubans definitely don't speak Jamaican Patois. So when you have that language barrier, these kind of projects don't just easily happen. Then you've got the economic limitations. like, And sometimes it takes someone from outside to have the idea. And when I had the idea, the first person I called was Sly Dunbar of Sly and Robbie fame because I'd done some sessions with him and met him a few times and that was my dream team. And I said, Sly, would you be interested to come to uh, Cuba? And I said, yeah, man. It was like, you know, I totally love the idea. And that's been the beauty of this project because I didn't have a lot of funds, to be honest. I was really lucky to get some uh, Australia Council funding through the arts. 
Um, they had a, 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 a grant back then called International Collaborations. So me and a friend did the application and we were successful. And that really helped. That covered the flights and the international fees and the Cuban fees and the studio fees. And then, of course, I put a lot of my own, um, you know, uh, funds and we did a Kickstarter as well to sort of help make it all happen. Um, but the key to this project has been everyone loved the idea. The Cubans fascinated with Jamaicans and vice versa. Everyone wanted it to happen, you know. So from that little idea sitting in that cafe in Havana, uh, fast forward six months later and Stein, Robbie, Bongo, Herman, Bopi and about 30 Cuban musicians all in a studio together in Havana. It's amazing, man. And I, I think, mm -hmm. um, how much do you think your musical background has to do with the idea that you had? And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Um, to hear the similarities, obviously Cuba, Jamaica have more similarities that goes just beyond being islands in the Caribbean that have mm. to do with the colonialism, the African roots mm. that go with it. How much, so how much of your musical background and the fact that you were schooled in this, do you think you were able to put those things together with your ears? I think, yeah, look, I mean, in terms of the musical compatibility of the yes. two islands, I mean, yeah. that, yeah. that, that, I've never, I guess I never had any concern about that because I knew the musics were so different, but I knew as a producer, I'd be able to bring the elements together and find ways to, to make it work. And there'd be all kinds of surprises that I wouldn't be able to anticipate, you know. Um, practic on the practical level, I think I just, I just like, I'm Australian. We love to travel. You know, I'm pretty optimistic. I've got a positive outlook on life. And I know I believe everything's possible, you know. And when I had the idea, I thought, oh, for sure, I can make this happen somehow, you know. There was, I'll tell you a nice story, though, because there was, it would have been um, a few months before we all got to Cuba and Sly and Robbie had kept changing the dates and people were getting frustrated and there were other artists that had changed. And I was just starting to despair. It's like, how can I have all these people together at the same time when everyone's got such busy schedules and stuff? And I was starting to kind of get, should I delay it? Should I push it all back another six months or something? And I don't do this a lot, but I have the I Ching at home and I, I, uh, I'm very grateful for this because I did an I Ching reading just asking basically that for someone that doesn't know the I Ching's ancient Chinese book of sort of, um, uh, I guess it's like you call it um, a, 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 a book. Well, in the edition that I have, Carl Jung gives a nice introduction. He says, think of the book as an old Chinese grandfather that you want to ask some advice to, basically. So it's a, it's a divination kind of tool. Um, and anyway, I just asked the question to the I Ching, you know, is now the time? Should I do it? And, you know, you throw the coins and the coins land and then you get these hexagrams and the hexagrams sort of give you an idea of the, the past, the present, the future. And basically I got the most powerful hexagram in the whole book, which was just the universe is behind you, go. And that was the message I got. I was like, oh, fuck, that was a massive fuck, yeah. And I was just like, okay, not worrying. Okay, guys, we're doing a boom, boom, boom. But it just gave me a, whether it was true or not, it just gave me a super confidence that helped facilitate everything, you know, because suddenly I just had the balls to do it, you know. Well, it's amazing, man, because, you know, mm -hmm. obviously the, the more people that you try to bring into any project, Mm. just trying to schedule all that is, is unbelievable. So it's good that you had, you, you have to have that, um, you have to be able to stick with it and see it through. So I'm, I'm glad, mm. that, I'm glad that you were able to do that. So mm. tell me what it was like the first, the first session, the first time you walk into the studio and you say, all right, let's do this. Um, where is the, where's the writing coming from? Is, is a lot of this improvisational? Are you walking in there with a lot of ideas or other people bringing, walking in with a lot of ideas? Tell me the creative process. 
Sure, sure. Well, there's, um, I'll send you a link later to the, the EPK for the first album, which has some footage of actually when the Jamaicans first walked into Egram. It'll give you an idea of like, they're looking like, wow. Um, but the very first song we did was actually became the Ernest Wranglin instrumental, which is on the first album. Um, but yeah, I took in, you know, originally in Australia, I was thinking, should I do complicated charts? You know, these Cuban horn guys are so good. And I, in the end, I thought, you know what? I just want to keep it simple. I just do simple sort of jazz charts with some notation of riffs, but mainly just chord charts for everyone. And it worked beautifully because it meant these great musicians had the structure they needed, but there wasn't too much detail or too much information to stop there and a natural um, style or flavour or feel come through in their playing, you know. And, yeah, the first, this first track, it's me, my, I just remember my engineer, Eric, he's Australian, Argentinian, and um, he, we just looked at each other as the band first started to play. We were like, oh, my God, this is going to work. And, you know, Robbie's rolling bass lines. The Cubans hadn't heard anything like it, so much sub coming from his fingers. And then the Cuban percussion working so well with the, with the Jamaican grooves. And, um, yeah, it was a really effortless sort of process, like, Musically, you know, we do two or three takes, not much more, and um, just work out the right BPM, the right speed, the right feel, make a few corrections here and there. But basically I was there for 10 days hoping to record about a 15-track album, so one or two songs a day. Man, I couldn't keep up. We were doing three, four, five songs a day, and I was like at night, it's like quickly trying to write out new tracks and get the charts ready, and it was good. And in the middle, actually, who was it? I think it was Robbie. Um, he said, uh, yeah, he said, let's do, can we just do a half, half a day with just the Jamaicans, you know? Because there's this, um, I guess, cliche, Jamaicans are herb smokers and, and sort of, but man, no, the, the Jamaicans were working so hard and fast. It was the Cubans that are really distracted drinking rum and wanting to make everything a party and stuff. So in the middle of these 10 days at Egram, the Jamaicans said, let's just do four or five hours of us. And we did about six or seven rhythms, really nice. That was Slime Robbie. Bongo Herman, myself, and Bopi on guitar. Um, and, yeah, some of that's yet to be released. Hmm. Oh, that's cool. Do you have plans yeah. somewhere down the line to, to release some of that? Yeah, well, Havana Meets Geeks and Part 2 has come out today. And I don't know if I'm going to do a Part 3, but I certainly want to take the musicians to some new territories and expand the kind of collaborative nature of this. So, But for sure, some of those rhythms. Like, I mean, you know, we lost Robbie... Yeah. was four or five months ago now from illness. And uh, so I feel very lucky, blessed even to, to, to have been able to work with them and to have all this, their, you know, my hard drive full of their rhythms, basically. So for sure, I release all, first of all, it's beautiful music. Second of all, I hate to see it just sitting there and no one hearing it, you know? Right. So you released, yeah. you released the first one in 2017. Um, yeah. And did you jump right out into touring? Um, no, that's the other thing. That was a nice surprise too, because you know Robbie is very serious in all the sessions, and then and then again it was sort of towards the end of those ten days, and he said, "Jake, I want to talk with you." And I said, oh, "Something serious, maybe." He's like, "Man, when are we taking the band on the on the road?" I was like, "What?" Because I never conceived of it as a live project. I'd always thought this was a studio project. So when these guys are actually saying they were happy to tour with the crazy Cubans, I was like, "Okay, awesome, let's do it." So, yeah, that and then that um, expanded very nicely. And then we did a, a beautiful European tour in 2018, which culminated in an uh, incredible concert at the Royal Albert Hall in London, which I would never have dreamed of playing. And 
We, um, yeah, played for the BBC Proms. It was all televised on BBC TV and radio um, and it was an amazing exposure for the project. In fact, the, the album went to number one on the UK iTunes for World Music the following day, you know. Yeah. Um, the English love the project and, I, yeah, I'm really grateful to them for that. And actually in a few weeks I'm flying to Glastonbury um, I'm DJing there and I can't wait. Oh, nice. So yeah. let's talk about it. Let's talk about part two. Uh, when did you yep. start recording? When, when did you decide you were going to do a part two? Well, like I said, in those original sessions, we recorded so much material. I knew straight away that there was going to be at least a second album, if not more. But, um, yeah, we released the first album. We toured. And then I started to go through all the sessions and just realized how much great music there was. But also, because with, with the first album, just as a nod of respect, you know, we did some Buena Vista Social Club covers. But for the second album, I didn't want, I wanted to be more original. So actually, um, far less covers and more original music that's, and, and drawing on more wider influences, like including Cuban flamenco um, and timbar and styles of music that weren't represented on the first record. Um, and yeah, we did many, many, many more sessions. We did tough long sessions in Kingston at Bob Marley's studio. Um, I've worked with many new studios in Havana that I hadn't been to, some smaller. Um, some more established and yeah, we just, many of the songs for this new record kind of developed in that, in that way. And, and um, they're definitely companion albums. Like I would love people to listen, be able to listen to both. Like they're mixed, the many of the same musicians, same studios mixed in a similar way, but the new record has a more distinctive sound of its own, I think, and possibly more original in a way. Mm. Oh, that's great, yeah. man. Um, so talking about the original sessions with this, did any of those end up on this album or was it more? Yeah, about half, about half. half. But then everything we added, you know, overdubbed and added new things. And then, yeah, about half is like completely new sessions in, in other studios. And um, yeah, and like I said, two of the tracks, Siempre C and We Are One, which has Prinzella, were both recorded at Tough Gong Studio. And actually with Chinna Smith, who I'd always wanted to record with, amazing guitar, Jamaican guitarist. Um, so it's nice to have, yeah, I think we counted the amount then on the, the new album, there's a total of 71 singers and musicians. Man. So, yeah. so, so what are your plans? Are you going to tour this album too? Yeah, we've got a Europe tour in July coming up and nothing planned for the States yet, but I'm really keen. I'm hoping, you know, hopefully at least later this year or early next year, we can line up some tours. Um, the U S is still kind of, um, in a way, um, you know, I've done DJ tours of the States, but never with Havana meets Kingston band. So that's something I'd love to do, but yeah, we've got UK and Europe coming up in July. Yeah. That's cool. I'd love to see you here in the States, man. Um, Bring it. yeah, I'd love to see, I'd love to see, I'd love to, to see this. It's because on record, on record, it gives you an idea of what it would be like to see this happening in front of you. So I, mm. I think, I think this, I, you know, it, it would be, it'd be a beautiful thing to see a tour of the States with it too. Mm. Um, man, I'd like to just talk about some of the tunes on this album and, you know, we can kind of all throw a, a name of a tune out at you and you kind of give me your feelings, your thoughts about it, how the tune came together. Um, let's start, start with the human chain. Uh, which featured mm. uh, Clinton Farron, who is uh, very, very highly regarded by you know myself included, by a lot of people of in the course. states. He's up yeah. in he's up in the in the Washington in the Seattle area, and he's I mean he's mm. he's huge up there. So yeah, man, mm. give me give me your rundown on the Human Chain. 
Well, he's, I mean, yeah, Clinton's a living legend of the Gladiators, uh, one of my favorite Jamaican vocal groups of all time. Um, and it's really nice with Clinton because he, I'd never met him before, but he'd heard the Havana Meets Kingston Part 1. And, and amazingly, he actually approached me. He said, look, I've heard you're working on the second album. Have you got any rhythms? I was like, oh, my God, of course. And I sent him a few and he chose that particular rhythm, which was one of the rhythms we recorded the day when the Jamaicans wanted to kick the Cubans out of this, out of the studio. And it's a beautiful rhythm. I mean, I wrote the chords and the piano parts, but Sly and Robbie and Bongo gave it this amazing rock steady feel, you know, and, um, and Julito, the Cuban trumpeter, Julito Patron's my trumpeter. He's just a phenomenally evocative player. He plays almost like a textbook, perfect kind of solo in, in this track. Um, and yeah, Clinton heard the rhythm, loved it. He was in Paris at the time, so we did the session on distance, but I jumped on video to kind of be in there with, with him in the session. And it's just a beautiful tune, like very simple lyrics, but very deep. And that's, again, that's what I love about Roots Reggae. It's the, it's the, the depth in the simplicity, you know? Um, and yeah, and I mixed that in a way. I wanted to sound like an old Yuan tune, old Rocksteady tune. Um, if you isolate, I'll do, I'm going to release some dubs of that, but when you isolate the drums and the percussion, it's just got this really unique shuffle. I don't think any other musicians in the world could play that feel because it's not quite reggae, it's rock steady, you know, and there's a difference. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah definitely a difference there. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about Solutions. That's another tune that really caught my ear. Tell me about that one. Nice. Well, that one was fun because I'd always wanted to have a rhythm that I could mix in with a Stella, you know, with Bam Bam or with... Um, uh, you know, any of the great vocal versions on the Stella rhythm. And it's that kind of dun, dun, almost like a break. A dun, dun. And so, yeah, I came up with my own version of that. And um, Sly Dunbar is playing this great kind of breaky rhythm for that. And then Stevie Culture is a singer who I worked with on my first trip to Jamaica back in 2004. And um, he, he featured on two tracks on the Melbourne Meets Kings album, which was um, the opening track, Turn Up the Music, and also a great Herb tune called Herb, Herb, Herb. And then because that was back in 2004, he didn't have email. I, I couldn't find him for almost 15 years, you know, but I found emails and this. And then finally about a year, a year and a half ago, we started talking. But even then he was rarely on Messenger or WhatsApp and didn't see my messages. Um, but finally we hooked up a studio session and I sent him that rhythm and he killed it. It's like an anthem. I love his vocals on that tune. Um, and a great lyric too, you know, I don't want to worry about the problem. I want to find a solution. You know, I yeah. love that. That's funny. Yeah. I was just, before you popped on, my wife and I were talking about the same thing uh, with climate change. You're like, mm. man, we, we spent a lot of time talking about the problem. Um, just the, fucking plant trees, plant trees, plant yeah, we, trees. Yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. We, were, we were saying that it's yeah. like, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to disrespect climate scientists or anything like that, but like mm. we've known about this problem for like 50 years and mm. the, 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 the science thing has been like telling governments, telling businesses to stop what they're doing. Well, these people aren't going to stop what they're doing because they're making a lot of money and we know mm. where their motivations are. So for the rest of us, like mm. let's come up with some solutions to combat what these fools are doing, the environment. Mm. And it seems like we still haven't, we're not like, we're not pushing planting trees. We're not, mm. we're not coming up with novel ideas to, you know, to reduce mm. greenhouse gases, things like that. So solutions to me is such a powerful tune because like, yeah, man, mm. we spend a lot of time assigning blame. It's your, mm. this is your fault that you're doing this. Yeah. Stop. All right. Yeah. Forget about it, man. What about the solutions? So to me, when mm. I, you know, that's a powerful tune because in, in, in every area of your life, we can yeah. use the message in that tune, you know? Mm. 
A hundred percent, man. I'm totally with you. <laughs> totally with you. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, I guess, yeah, I mean, we can all get lost in kind of, um, yeah, blame. What is, um, Eckhart Tolle has this great, I was listening to a talk of his the other day, he has this great word. It was like, he was talking about the collective. I can't remember what he said, but it was basically talking about the collective, um, you know, the human collective, just so ready to jump on and bash someone and, um, you know, like where it's just like forget about that and focus on solutions and how you can help, you know. Um, I used to work for a tree planting company doing, before I became a full-time musician. I did a lot of revegetation, native but We planted one of the biggest, I think it was the biggest human-made wetland in the southern um, hemisphere. And it was just like it used to be a, 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 like a, a, a kind of a, a wetland system actually, but it had been all drained and then there was a housing estate going there. But um, basically there was funding for us to plant it. And we did, and all these endangered and extinct species came back and suddenly birds, migrating birds were reappearing. Nature jumps back so quickly, you know. We just need to give it a bit of help. Um, so, yeah, conserving the rainforests and the forests that we have and planting more trees. It's just so simple, you know. Yeah. up the planet it, yeah. would go, it would go a long way to to, to helping things man so mm-hmm. uh and that's cool it's really cool that you were involved with a lot of that stuff and you know we all we all have mm-hmm. musicians almost all of us have other things we have to do for money sometimes mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a pretty cool thing to do man to spend your time mm-hmm. helping the environment to do that uh mm-hmm. another tune i want to talk about and you mentioned it earlier but let's talk about siempre si um mm-hmm. I, I love that tune man give me your give me your vibes on that tune yeah, Siempre Seed to me is sort of like the flagship of the album in the way that Carnival was for the first album. Both feature Randy Valentine, um, you know, who's one of my favourite UK, um, UK Jama- he's a Jamaican artist living in the UK. Um, and Brenda and Diane, the cu- two Cuban singers on it, kill it. And it's a great chorus. Um, Siempre Seed Nunca No Farabla La Tonica Es Logica, which translate literally as always yes, never no, Go with the flow, it's logical. And the nice thing is that in the Spanish and the English, it'll rhyme. So they were able to kind of back and forth on the chorus in English and Spanish, you know. Um, yeah, it's a message that's like when you're in the flow, when you're in the zone, uh, relax a bit and then just good things come basically. And I love the twist. Like Randy's got this great verse and then Brenda just comes in hard and then she switches sort of halfway verse, um, starts to sing about rumba and the the international Colombian, the Cuban influences, and then the rhythm changes and we drop this kind of more like a rumba um, feeling. The Afro-Cuban percussion comes in, the bass line changes, and then it goes back into that groove. And actually we recorded that rhythm at Tough Gong Studios, but the new section we recorded in Cuba for her verse. So it's nice kind of um, a mashup. And that's, that song is a really good example of how the two styles can meet, Jamaica and Cuba can meet, and um effortlessly and and produce something a new sound you know and i love that man um Mm. as someone as someone who's been involved with reggae music for you know most of my life um Mm. one thing i love seeing especially with all the guests that i interview is how how well reggae meets with other styles in this case how well Mm. it met with with cuban and other styles uh, and I think a lot of that is just the foundation of reggae comes from Africa as pretty much every, almost every style of music does originate from African mm. drumming. Mm. Um, and so I always love seeing bands pull. A lot of times it's whatever's local to them. You know, California reggae bands sound like California mm. reggae bands, you know? So sure, I, love, sure. I love what you did by bringing these together because it creates mm. something new. 
it's it's reggae, mm-hmm. it's Cuban, but it's both, but it's also not really either because you've invented something mm-hmm. new. And the other thing mm-hmm. I love, you were talking about the lyrics of Siempre Si. Um, yeah. You've got a lot of lyrical depth on these albums, man. It, it, it would be so tempting for someone to do what you've done here with these styles of music and really just make party music, really just say, mm-hmm. we don't have to get deep on the lyrics. We can have just kind of some superficial lyrics. Forget about it. It's all about the music. Uh, was that important to you? Was the, having strong messages, and not, not that it's all that, but was having that important to you? Oh, for sure. And it's not just, um, it's not just like on, on a musical level as well, it was so important for me to have that sort of, I wanted integrity across these records, you know, and by that I mean like, you know, I love Roots Reggae. I love old Cuban music. We're recording in these beautiful studios with these amazing elderly elder legend musicians and also you know a lot of new young cats but i wanted the the album to have this sort of timeless feel so it's mixed in an old way everything the tape and um, as much analog equipment as possible and as minimal vocal processing as possible and um you know i wanted to have this timeless feel and of course lyrically i also want there to be a message and something very soulful because we're missing that a lot in music these days you know so, yeah, music with depth and integrity is what this project's all about. And, uh, you know, and it's my personal taste. You know, I love the Studio One. I love Jackie Mitu. I love Augustus Pablo. I love these uh, older, I love the Upsetters, Lee Perry. I love the Black Ark. Like, so in my mixing and in my sort of the, the sonic side of things, I want to have that kind of nice texture, you know, as, as basically not too digital and as analog as possible. Yeah. Well, you can feel it, man. It comes through. And, you know, part of, mm. it, is, part of it is these legendary studios that you're recording in that have been around mm. for, for, you know, a million years. And yeah. because it's, it's the same mics, it's the same board, it's the same, the same vibe in the room, the same walls, you know, and all that. Um, mm. But it's also easy to take that and squash it out too digitally. So it's, it's really mm. cool that you've tried to maintain that vibe. Uh, mm. Another tune, man. Let's talk about Guadachara. Yes, yes, and that's a hard one to pronounce. It was, uh, it was, uh, you know, like uh, my Spanish is not great, but after hearing it so much, it's actually this, it's it's spelled guarachara, but actually the way they say it is wadashida, wadashida, <laughs> and it's a great tune. It's um, that's one of my favorite tracks on the record. It started uh, Solis, who's one of the singers I worked with. He was in the studio playing some guitar, and he was playing this awesome little. I said, solo, solo, stop, play that again. But then he couldn't remember what he'd played. Luckily, my camera guy had his camera on. So I took a loop of the camera audio and made the beginning of that track. And then I got solos in later on and he learned what he'd played and he replayed it. Then I had some congas. And, yeah, it was literally just um, guitar and congas, I think. And then Diane, the singer who I'd met for the first time, came in and just did such an epic vocal. Like it was straight away, feel, hang on, I don't want this to be an acoustic track at all. So I had a double bass and then electric bass and, um, and, and it was starting to really come together. And then I thought, oh, this would be amazing with some flamenco. And in Cuba, there's um, a whole tradition of, you know, the flamencos come from Spain to Cuba, but then they've twisted it and transformed it in their own way. So I got a, a, a Cuban flamenco guitarist and percussionist in, and then we added. So the song just started to come to life. But then, um, yeah, I did another session. I did about 10 studio sessions for this track. I got my drummer, um, Oliver Valdez, and Yeroldi, my conga player, and Brendan Navarrete in. But the studio it was a little studio. I wasn't happy with that sound. And then in the end, I got Rodney Bretto, who's like incredible drummer, one of Cuba's greatest drummers. He came in and added some parts as well. And so 
it was step by step like this. And eventually it sounds like a big band playing, but actually we did it all in increments, you know, and, but the magic is there. And then finally I got Diane back in and said, okay, now we have the complete song. And then he, then he just killed it. You know, we added some new sections and the music video for that is beautiful. If people, I don't know if you can put a link in the, in, in this podcast, but we filmed it during the pandemic in a beautiful 1920s mansion, Casa, they call it here in near the Havana airport. And it, this particular house was a gift from the Spanish king to a Cuban family who'd apparently helped save his life in one of the wars. And it's the most remarkable, it looks like going back in time, you know. So I got all the musicians to dress in old clothes. We hired some old cars to give it that 1930s or 40s feel. And the music video is amazing. Then halfway through it switches to modern Havana. And because of the pandemic, we're only allowed to have 20 people at a time, but I kept bringing in new people and we kept it to 20, but to try and make it look more like a big party, you know. It was the fight, it's the biggest, it's very cinematic music video and it's the biggest music video I've done, but I'm so happy with it. Um, yeah, you can find that on YouTube. Yeah, man, let's talk about videos because uh, mm. one, one thing that, imp- uh, another thing that impresses me about what you're doing is, so the album's just out now, but you've already got a bunch of videos for these two. Yeah, basically... Because we didn't want to release the album in the pandemic, you know, for two reasons. First of all, we want touring. And also I didn't want to release the album when people are stuck at home. And, you know, I wanted it to come out at a time when people feel a bit more free. And But I came to Cuba last year basically to keep the project alive during the pandemic because I knew we couldn't release the album. So I thought, okay, I want to release a lot of singles. Um, in, in Cuba, I know great filmmakers. And it was just a... Um, it was just the right place to come. We did, we did, this was about a year ago. Yeah. We filmed like five or six music videos, you know, for the project. So, um, it's the most music videos I've, I've done more music videos for this album than I've done music videos in my life before that, you know, <laughs> but yeah, there's some great ones. We did a music video for the big Flow with Simafunk, the five from Africa with Michael Shamaya, um, the, what I should with Diane, um, we did a video for Lagrimas Negris, which is basically I wanted to document Havana in the lockdown because it was it's such a normally such a sort of wild city. It feels like a festival here normally, but in the pandemic it was deserted streets everywhere. So we used that footage for that music video. Um, and, I, um, and I, I love how yeah. you I love how you have the, the 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 text on the screen talking about that. Yeah. This was during yeah, the lockdown. Yeah, yeah. You know, these streets yeah. are usually full of people. Look, I mean, it's a it's yeah. uh, Havana, one of the one of the most vibrant cities in the world, was a ghost town. Mm. You know, totally. And today we've released Siempre C with his own music video, and I love the video. It's great. So uh, Randy, um, he's in the UK because of the pandemic. We we almost got him to Cuba actually, but in the end it didn't happen. So um, we used some of our live footage of Randy, but all the footage of Diane and Brenda is in Cuba, and it's beautiful. Yeah, you, yeah, you, that's you, just come out today. And you, uh, you're involved with directing these videos, right? Yeah, to some degree, like, I, I mean, with Wadashida, absolutely. I had the whole vision and very clear idea. But I've got a great filmmaker in Havana, Louis Toledo, and he, um, he's got great ideas himself. So between the two of us, we kind of direct it, yeah. Yeah. Mm. They all seem to have this very, um, it's a very colourful, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of style. There's a sense yeah. of, of soul and style that all of these videos have in common, man. Uh, so, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed with, with just the video <laughs> skills that go into what you're doing here. Um, so, um, the, the last tune I want to touch on, um, you know, I don't know if it's my favorite on the album, but it's definitely among my favorites and it kicks it off. Uh, talk to me about the fire from Africa. 
Yeah, this was, I mean, that, going back to that story I told you when I was that, and then my first trip to Cuba and it was the last day of a 10-day trip and I was sitting in the cafe and they actually had a CD player on. I was drinking coffee and they say in Cuba a lot of good ideas come with coffee, you know, coffee and rum and cigars. <laughs> and uh, I was just daydreaming and there was the Roomba playing. I just imagined how nice the sound of Night Bingy could be with um, with the Roomba. And actually the, this opening track for the new album, The Fire from Africa, I think really captures it. It's Bongo Herman on the keddy and the fundi and the bass drum with that night bingy and it starts very kind of solemn and then the guitar come in and then slime Robbie come in. And then that chant is actually from an old Cuban song from the 1940s. Um, it's a beautiful chant, basically. Um, I think it's the Cuban boys. It's I'll, I'll have to check. I'll, I'll send you a link to the original song, but basically the lyrics is, you know, the fire comes from Africa basically. And it just seemed the most perfect way to open the record Micah Shemaya sings beautifully on it. We've also got the Gideon, uh, Cuban singer Angela Lena and Pucheman does a verse. And, um, yeah, it's the, it's, a, it's the spiritual opening to the track and I love it. Um, um, we took this traditional Cuban chant, but otherwise it's all new original music, you know, and that's the, that's the, that's the real the strength of this new album, I think. Little, little, little moments of tributes to the, the history of both islands, but mostly it's fully original music, whereas the first record we paid more of a nod to the Buena Vista and the, the traditional Cuban stuff, you know? Yeah. It really is the best way to open this album, man, because you're talking mm. about foundational things. Africa mm. is the foundation of all music. You're mm. talking about the Nyabingi beat, which is a foundational mm. beat. You're talking mm. about the things that you're bringing in from Cuba that are foundational. So it's, it's like, mm. to, to mm. me, like you, you, you and, and maybe some people don't listen to albums anymore, start to finish, but to mm. me, to me, albums are created for a reason. We spend a lot of time sequencing these things. You mm. know, I don't know how much time I spend on going back and forth with my bandmates about, you know, what do you think of this track mm. list? Like, you know, because that, that sure, stuff sure. still matters when you put together an album project. Yeah. When, when I hit play on this album and that starts, you've got my attention immediately <laughs> Great. for everything else that's going to follow. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a beautiful tune to start with. Yeah, man, there's, you know? anyone that loves roots reggae, anyone that loves Jamaican music, uh, the Nibingi has a special place, you know, and I was very lucky years ago in Jamaica to get invited to an all-night gathering a bingy circle, basically, and it was just the percussionist and just the chanting all night. It's almost it's quite trance-like, you know. Mm -hmm. It's a profound experience. And and so, yeah, exactly what you said with the record starting like that, it's quite a serious way to start. But it's also I want to show the world this is a spiritual music. This is spiritual music. It's a spiritual project, you know. Um, and, yeah, there's a depth and in the message and the feeling of the music. And, yeah, I'm very happy the record starts with that song. And then we go straight into Siempre Si, which, like, takes it more into a, you know, the, the rockers, sort of uplifting rockers feel. Yeah. Mm. Oh, cool, man. Well, those were the tunes I wanted to ask you about. Uh, mm. now, now I want to talk about the future. So you're going to be doing some dates. You're going to be touring. You're thinking, about, yeah. you're thinking about adding some U.S. dates so I can come and see you. Um, I hope so. Mm -hmm. But, uh... But what about, man, if you play, you play anywhere in Florida, I'll drive out to see you. No doubt. Like, okay, great. Uh, uh, but now, um, uh, um, what does the future hold for you musically? Like, you just got done with this crazy project, and maybe you're not thinking mm -hmm. about what your next project is going to be. But do you, do you have ideas for where to go once this touring cycle is done, what you want to do creatively? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm not sure I'm going to do Havana Meets Kingston Part 3, but I definitely want to... Um, 
how do I say this? So I'm going to keep a little bit of a lid on it, but I definitely want to take these musicians on a bit of a another journey and introduce some new cultures and new territories and new meetings, you know. So it's something I'm going to get into um, next year. But, yeah, I was in Mauritius a few months ago, which is an island off the east coast of Africa. I had a show there. I have a very dear friend there and um, and... I just suddenly realized how much the, you know, the Africa's calling basically. So that's, that's, that gives you enough of a hint, you know? Well, anyone who goes deep enough in music, we've, we've mm. talked about Africa a few times on here, mm. but you know that this is the origin. This is the origin mm. of humanity. This is the origin mm. of music. You know, we've, mm. the, the first time somebody got the idea to stretch an animal hide across a log, was in Africa. Mm. It's where our communication mm. comes from. It's where our music comes from. Um, and what, what makes me very happy is that the music from Africa is finally getting out to the world in major ways, the way it never used to. It used to be, you know, maybe you'd have a music curator from the West that would go over there and try to bring this back mm. and introduce it. But we're really seeing it from, from South Africa and Ghana and Mali and all these different places. We're really seeing mm. that. Um, so it's, it, the, the, the closer we can get to the Africa, the more music that can come out of Africa that can reach the rest of the world is, is, is a beautiful thing. You know? Mm. You know? Absolutely. And, and it was interesting listening to Rodigan actually recently talking about Afrobeats and the explosion of Afrobeats around the world. And he's basically saying, look, it's just like dancehall, but it's a bit more approachable, a bit easier, a bit less aggressive. And people want that, you know, and I, in a way I totally agree. Like I love the fact that Afrobeats is so influenced by, particularly in the vocal delivery by dancehall and Jamaican patois and the flow yet. The, and the groove has this like, you know, often Soweto feeling guitars or just a bit more of a gentle kind of groove in there than a lot of dancehall now. And, and, and so I can understand how, you know, because a lot of people, I guess Jamaicans, are a bit lamenting a bit that Afrobeats has overtaken dance or popularity. But I mean, they're both they're intrinsically linked. It's just a different expression of the same kind of feeling, you know. Um, and yeah, I see a lot of positives in that. I'm sure Afrobeats is going to have a big influence on dance and the music coming out of Jamaica in the coming years. So again, it's like a Caribbean back to Africa, back to yeah. you know, it's this amazing. The Caribbean is a magical hotspot, man. Like the fact that Cuba and Jamaica are these tiny islands right next door to each other that have had a profound effect on the world's music way beyond what this a little island theoretically should be capable of, you know, like, I mean, King Tubby back in the day basically invented the bass drop and the remix and the version, you know, all these early Jamaican pioneers experimenting, you know, like their studios, clouds of like, haze from the, 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 you know, the pipes and the bong and they're tripping out and experimenting with the effects and delays and making this super evocative music. And that was really the, the precursor for everything that came later. Like, I mean, yeah, like I said, they invented the version, they invented the remix mm. and Cuba has had a profound influence. Like, you know, it's the birthplace of so many genres, um, salsa music, all these musics, like this tiny Island has just given birth to um, you know, so much unique music. So those two islands combined, wow, you know, so uh, there's something special happening here. Like there's some, there's an energy in these islands, you know, I'm sure it's a song line or some kind of hot spot, powerful spot energetically on the planet. I have no doubt, you know. Well, man, even hip hop, like most people, most mm -hmm. Americans don't realize how 
hip hop was birthed from Jamaican sound systems that came to New York oh, totally. and that led to hip hop. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. and, yeah. and, like, and like you said, there's this cycle. There's a cycle from the Caribbean to Africa and back. There's a cycle to the US, mm. through Africa, Caribbean, back, like everywhere in the world. Just, just the fact that some kid from Trenchtown became the most recognizable musical artist in the history of the planet. Mm. It's just, I mean, that's, it's, it's a, like you said, man, just a tiny island, but yeah. it's, it's that power. It's that vibe. Yeah. It, has, it has something special to share with the world mm. and it still does, you know, and you're, and you're right about, you know, I, I've seen that before where people, there's sometimes there's this, there's this Afrobeat uh, uh, dance hall competition thing. And it's like, you know, come on, man, it's all beautiful. And yeah, you know, yeah. Afrobeat might have a little bit more, like you were saying, a little more of the organic instruments, a little, a little less electronic, a little more of the organic mm -hmm. in there. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's what makes it a little more accessible to certain people who want some of that organic. But, you know, whatever, man, it's all beautiful. It's all kind of the same. It's all the same fiber. Just enjoy it. We don't need competition. Totally. Um, well, that's cool, man. Totally. I look, I look forward to whatever your your next projects are. Yeah, yeah. and um, you're gonna love it. I'll just tell you that much. You're gonna love it. Uh, I'm sure I will, man. I love yeah. what you've done so far, so I have no Thank doubt you. that that you'll keep going with that in the future with, mm -hmm. with whatever you do. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So we we're coming towards the end of our our interview here, man. And I always sure. like to ask a couple of tough questions. Uh, okay. So I, I hope you'll indulge me and uh, and, sure. and give me give me some tough answers to some tough questions. So the first one, you uh. You do a lot, man. You DJ, you create, mm -hmm. producer, musician, uh, videographer, mm -hmm. all these different mm -hmm. things that you do, man. Um, if you could only do one of them, whether it was on the creative end, whether it's recording, producing, performing, but you could only do one of these things, what would you choose? Oh, it's a tough question. It's always like, you know, on a tropical island, what's the one food you would take or something? But look, I guess I had to answer that question right now. Yes. Might, maybe the answer, maybe the answer would be different tomorrow because I love collaboration and production. But look, I'm a piano player. I love to play an instrument. You know, so if I was stuck on an island and and and, and I and I would choose a piano for sure, so I can keep playing, keep writing, keep imagining the possibilities. You know. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a tough question. It's like I would choose all of them, and, and that's why I'm doing it all. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to, you'd have, yeah. you'd have to bring a piano tuner to that island with you, man, because yeah, yeah. the humidity sure. is just gonna just gonna play yeah. havoc on that piano. Totally, totally, yeah. So, so the other question I always ask, man, um, if someone hasn't heard Havana Meets Kingston Part One or Two, mm -hmm. and you're trying to get them to listen to it, and they say, "All right." Give me one. I'm a busy person. Give me one tune I should listen to that you feel is representative of this project. What would you tell them to check out? Well, funnily enough, I might choose, and I wouldn't uh, wouldn't have chosen this song, you know, probably a few years ago. But there's the instrumental version of Carnival on the first album. It's called Carnival Horns, and somehow that's become the biggest played song of my project on Spotify. I think it's got like three or four million plays. That particular song. But it's just Julito is just wailing on the trumpet and in a very Cuban tone, but it's this heavy roots rhythm, Sly and Robbie, but really quite funky. And it's just a really nice meeting of the sounds. And I think that's why, I mean, it's rare that an instrumental song is the one that people resonate with, you know, like people love their vocals. And, but yeah, for some reason, this song's had a particular, um, yeah, people have connected with it. And I would say right now that I would choose that song. But if you had to ask me from the new album, which I should probably be promoting because it's just being released today. 
Um, I think, yeah, probably Siempre Si because it's just got everything, the best, the, all my favorite things from both islands in one song, you know, a very joyful chorus. Always yes, never no, go with the flow. It's logical. I love that. That's beautiful, man. Is there something, is there something about this new album that you want people to know that they're not going to get just from listening to it? Is there some, some message you, you want people to be aware of? Sure. Just it's a labor of love and we love, and we had many challenges with the pandemic. Um, and I'm very, very happy that I was able to record with Bo P, my guitarist before he passed away because he passed away a couple of years from a heart attack. And I'm very lucky to have done all these sessions with Sly and Robbie before Robbie passed away from health complications during the pandemic, you know? So I would never have dreams that these great artists that I was still thinking I would be touring with, um, you know, I don't think any of us really anticipated the pandemic. And then, um, you know, now I've lost two of these greatest musicians that I was so lucky to work with. So on one hand, that's sad. On the other hand, it's, I'm really, really, it's a beautiful thing. They represented um, a feature and, and their sound is so strong on this album. And I hope this second album is, you know, as, as, as appreciated as the first one. And I hope in time they both become, I guess, staples of, 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 you know, roots music, you know, because there's some amazing musicians on there. And, you know, like I said earlier, there's 71 different musicians on the new record aged anywhere between eight, 16 at the time to about 80. So, um, you know, of course, not all the musicians are going to live forever. So it's a big team of people that I've worked with. And um, I guess what I'm saying is I'm very lucky that in, in that time and place, I was able to bring them all together and that we've been, been able to release this music despite the pandemic and all the challenges that came with it. That's uh, beautiful, man. It's a, it's, yeah, a be- yeah. it's a beautiful tribute to these artists. And mm. I have no doubt that part two will be at, at least as well received as part one because it's, it's another beautiful collection of music, man. It's, it, it's, it's sometimes with a sequel, you never know how it's going to go. But I'll tell you, man, um, it's, it's a beautiful album. I, I'm, incre- I'm incredibly impressed with it. I'm, there's, there's some things about it that show even more growth from the first album. Uh, I'm excited yeah. that this is out there. I'm excited for people to hear it. Uh, please tell, please tell everyone where they can check out, you know, give me your website, your socials, all that stuff. Um, so I, I use Bandcamp, which I really love because that's a site where people can listen to the songs. They can buy purchase if they want to and set their own price. You can buy MP3 or wave or any quality um, that you like. Um, and then of course I've got Instagram, Mr. Sabone also have Artemis Kingston and Facebook, all the, all the regular places. Um, the Bandcamp is a great place. If you go to Bandcamp, Mr. Savona, and that's spelled M-I-S-T-A and then Savona is spelled S-A-V-O-N-A. That gives you almost my whole catalog there. You can just have a browse, check it out. And yeah, that's a great way for people to hear my music. So cool. Mm. That's great. And, and, and tell everybody some of the cities that they can catch you in worldwide. So we've got a Europe tour coming up. We're playing in Germany, in France, in Belgium, Switzerland, UK, and Poland. And yeah, uh, the date, I've just upgraded my website and the dates are up. So if people go to www.havanameetskingston.com, they'll see that info. Um, and I'm DJing Glastonbury and Boomtown Festivals in the UK coming up really soon. Um, so it's nice. Lots to look forward to. Right now I'm in Havana. I've just played the Havana World Music Festival. And that was our first time doing the full band show here. So that was really nice. Um, 
Yeah, man, let's see how the album how the album's received and hopefully off the back of this album we can tour the world a lot more. Uh, it's gonna be received great and I'm gonna tell everybody I know to go out and check it Please. out. So Jake Savona, man, this has been so cool talking with you. Uh, I'm a big admirer nice, of your Thank work, you. man, and so it's great yeah, to yeah. chat with you. So the album's called Mr. Savona Presents Havana Meets Kingston Part Two. Go yeah. check it out. Uh, Jake Savona, thank you so much for being on the Talking Reggae podcast. And man, when next next project, man, please come back and talk with us again, okay? We will for sure. Hit me up anytime. I'd love that. Thanks, brother. You take care of yourself. Right. One love, all right? Thank you so much, man. You take care. Oh, no.